Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 983. This past Advent season, we prepared our hearts to celebrate Jesus' birth on Christmas morning by meditating upon his work of redemption as it is set before us here in Colossians chapter 1. First, in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, we saw the goal of our redemption. We saw that we were redeemed to new life, to a a new life of faith and love. Jesus did not redeem us so that we could go on sinning with impunity, but rather he redeemed us that we might bear fruit and grow in every good work in the knowledge of God. Next, we saw the nature or or the substance of our redemption. We saw that our redemption consists in the forgiveness of our sins and our deliverance from the domain of darkness and in our qualification for inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. Third, we saw the person of our Redeemer, the one who has done all this for us. We saw that our Redeemer is the invisible God made visible in human flesh, the Creator God Himself, come to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. And then finally, last Sunday, We saw the condition of our redemption. We saw that it is those who continue in the faith, those who remain unmoved from the hope of the gospel, who will be finally presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ. If we would be saved, we must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel, and we must abide in him. This morning, on the final Sunday of 2018, I want us to return to this chapter one more time, because I believe that that Paul's question, Paul's language raises a question that we have not yet addressed, and it's a question that is particularly appropriate for us to consider as we prepare to begin a new year. So let us read the text together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is the very word of God. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we come humbly 
asking that the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would now be at work among us, that his words, which are your words, might not return to you void, but rather might bring forth an abundant harvest of righteousness to the praise of your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The week after Christmas, our attention often turns to the beginning of the new year. Many people begin to think about the the changes that they would like to make in the year to come. How would they like 2019 to be different than 2018? What would they like to do differently? What would they like to do better? We call the decision to endeavor after some positive change a New Year's resolution. Some of the more common resolutions we we are more than familiar with. People resolve that they are going to finally lose a little weight. That they are going to exercise more. That they are going to quit smoking. Or they are going to get out of debt. The possibilities are endless. There, There are any number of changes that we need to make and that we can resolve to make in the year to come. But such resolutions are often the object of scorn or ridicule. Not because the change that is pursued is trivial or or insignificant, but because the change is rarely achieved. We know from experience that such resolutions are seldom kept for more than a couple of months. In fact, most aren't even kept for a couple of weeks. However, as you've probably heard me say before, if you've been around Trinity very long, despite the fact that we rarely keep them, I believe such resolutions have value. Such resolutions have value because they remind us that that we are on a course to a particular destination. They, They remind us that we are going in a particular direction. They identify for us a goal. Such resolutions keep us from wandering aimlessly. They they keep us from being blown here and there indiscriminately by the the strong winds of our culture. The process of making such resolutions affords us the opportunity to think about the kinds of people that God has called us to be. And therefore, our repeated failures to keep our New Year's resolutions for for more than even a few weeks should not prompt us to reject the idea of making resolutions all together, but instead should prompt us to make resolutions far more frequently. A year is just too long. We need to make resolutions each new month, each new week, even each new day. I believe Jesus himself taught us this when when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Jesus is, is setting before his disciples what is required of the ones who would be his people, of the ones who would come after him. And he says, whoever would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, and, and follow. But that little word daily is significant. Jesus is saying that this is what we must do not once, but repeatedly. This is what we must do daily. The Christian life is a long series of resolutions. Not New Year's resolutions, but New Day resolutions. A New Day resolution to deny ourselves and follow Christ. This is what we must do as disciples, because we are called to resolve daily to walk as becomes His followers. I bring this up this morning not only because this is the last Sunday of the year and we have such resolutions on our mind, but also because I believe that in these verses, Paul sets before us one resolution that every Christian must make. Not once a year, but each new day. Look again at what Paul writes. He says, We who were alienated and hostile in mind towards God have now been reconciled in Christ and will one day be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Him if we continue in the faith. As we saw last Sunday, Paul is identifying for us the condition of our redemption. He is, he is telling us that continuing in the faith is the condition of our final salvation. And the faith that he is talking about it is not our personal faith, it's not our subjective faith, it's not our believing, but it's either what we believe. It is the object of our faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. The good news of God concerning His Son, that, that gospel that was proclaimed by Paul and all the apostles throughout the whole earth. The good news that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, come in human flesh to give His life as the ransom for the lives of His people. This is the faith. And this is the faith in which we must continue as disciples of Jesus Christ. We must resolve to continue in this faith day by day for the rest of our lives. And therefore, this is the resolution that we must make. And with that in mind, I, I want us to consider more carefully this morning what it is that, that Paul tells us about the meaning of continuing in the faith. What does it mean... To continue, we'll see that, that Paul gives us three phrases to help us answer that question. To continue in the faith, he says, is to be stable, it is to be steadfast, and it is to be unmoved from the hope of the gospel. So let's begin there. To be continue in the faith first is to be stable. The word that's translated here as, as stable is also sometimes translated as Establish. It's, it's the same word that we see throughout the Greek Old Testament when, when it's talking about the establishing of a city, laying the foundations of a city. That's what that Paul is saying here. We must have our foundations laid. We must be 
stable. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the house built by the wise man. I'm sure you, you remember the, the illustration. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the one who, who hears my words and puts them into practice is, is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The language of, of building is that language of, of stable. It's the same word that, that Paul uses here. The, the wise man is the one who built his house upon a rock. The one who, who was established upon the rock. And Paul is telling us that we must similarly be established. We must have the gospel as our foundation. That means, of course, that we must believe the gospel. And remember, it is the gospel. Look at all the qualifiers that Paul puts on it. It is, it is the gospel that the Colossians heard, the gospel that Epaphras had, had preached to them. It is the gospel that was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. The, the one singular gospel of which Paul himself was a minister, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must believe this gospel as it has been delivered to us by the saints. And that may seem obvious to you. But it needs to be said in today's culture. We, we live in a culture where people believe that they have the right to sort of approach the gospel like a buffet, to picking and choosing what it is that they will accept, setting aside the, the Brussels sprouts and the other things that they don't really like so much. This is not the way that we receive the gospel. We must receive it as it has been presented to us. We must receive the gospel as it was proclaimed by the apostles, as it was delivered once for all to the saints. We do not allow, as Paul says, the, the winds of doctrine to blow us to and fro like children. We do not set aside a, a doctrine because it becomes unpopular in our present culture or because our, our neighbors believe that it isn't nice. We hold to the gospel as it was proclaimed, as it was delivered to the saints. This is what it means to, to have the gospel as our foundation. But when you think about Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount... It suggests to us that it, that it means even more than this. It, it means even more than giving our intellectual assent to the content of the gospel. Remember what Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. It is not merely believing the doctrine, but living it. The one who does the truth or, or lives the truth is the one who is established in the truth. He is the one who is stable. This is why Francis Schaeffer once said that the Christian life is merely living like you believe what you say you believe. Live as if the things that you profess on Sunday morning are actually true. Live in that Reality. That is what it is to be stable. It is the person who does this. It is the, the person who lives this way. It is the person who walks in a manner worthy of the gospel who is stable. Second, Paul tells us that to continue in the faith is not only to be stable, but it is to be steadfast. This word can also be translated as as firm. In the dictionaries, it means to be firmly or solidly in a place. 
Like the soldier who, who holds his post even against the onslaught of the enemy. In other words, it, it has the same connotations as, as stable. It brings to mind the same sorts of images. The idea is that we are firmly established or rooted in the gospel. When I see, think of this image, I, I think of the words spoken to, to Joshua before he be, was about to lead the people of God into the promised land. You remember those words? What is it that, that the Lord spoke to Joshua? He said to him, be strong and courageous. And that's where we normally stop reading. We, we normally stop there because we, we think that that's enough. And, and, it, and we think that we understand what he is getting at. After all, Joshua is about to lead the people of God into battle. Of course he needs to be strong and courageous. You, you need strength and you need courage to, to face war. However, we keep reading. We see that the Lord has a different sort of strength and courage in mind. The Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded. You do not turn from it to the right or to the left. The strength and the courage that, that, that the Lord has in mind is the strength and the courage to remain stable and steadfast. In the footsteps of faith. Not turning from the path to the right or to the left. He, he is calling on Joshua to be strong and courageous. To walk the path that has been set before him. When he gives to him the promised land. The Lord knows that he is going to give him the land. What he is calling on him to do is to remain faithful once the land is his. And Paul is giving us the same sort of charge. He, he is saying that we must be people who are careful to believe and to do the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not turn from it to the right or to the left. We must be stable. We must be steadfast in the gospel. And in case we missed it, he gives us the same image a third time in his final phrase. He, he says that we must... Continue in the faith by being unmoved, unshifting from the hope of the gospel. We saw earlier in verses 3 through 5 that the Christian life of, of faith and hope is rooted, uh, the, uh, the Christian life of faith and love is rooted in hope. We are, we are free to follow Christ here and now without fear because we are Confident of our future. We are free to give ourselves away in the service of our neighbor because we know that our good is eternally secure in the hands of our king. We know that we are kept by God's power. And therefore, we are free to walk the path that he has marked out for us. And Paul is saying that we must not be moved from this hope. We must not allow ourselves to be moved from this hope. But on the contrary, we must walk in the footsteps of faith. We must walk in the footsteps of hope day by day, every day, all our days. 
What is it that, that Paul's fears might move us? What are, what are the things that, that, that might knock us off of this hope, that, that might cause us to, to lose our balance, to become unstable? In the parable of the sower, Jesus identifies for us two things that might move us from the hope of the gospel. One is trials and suffering. He, he, he pictures these as a scorching sun. You, you remember the story Jesus tells of a, of a sower who goes out and, and plants his seed. Some of that seed fell on a hard path and the birds immediately came and, and ate it up and, and took it away. But other seed fell on what appeared to be good soil. It, it put down and began to, to put down roots and began to, to, to spring up. But some of that soil was shallow. And when the sun came out, it scorched the seed and it bore no fruit. Jesus tells us that, that scorching sun of the trials and the tribulations of life in this fallen world, those, those trials and those tribulations can move us from the hope of the gospel. But it's, but it's not only the scorching sun that can keep the seed from bearing fruit. There are also thorns and thistles which, which Jesus identifies as the, the temptations and, and the, the, the concern for the wealth and the pleasure of this life. These two can, can spring up as weeds and, and choke the seed and cause it to become unfruitful. And so both hardship and ease, both suffering and comfort, both want and abundance can move us from the hope of the gospel. Hardships move us from the hope of the gospel by causing us to doubt God's goodness, by, by causing us to doubt His power. How could God let this happen? Why would God do this to me? When we face the, the hardships of life in this broken world, we, we begin to wonder, we begin to, to doubt, and we are moved from the hope of our gospel. We, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put them on our, our immediate circumstances and we forget what Paul tells us in Corinthians, that the, the, the afflictions of this life are not worth comparing with the weight of glory that is being prepared for us. All we can see is the affliction. All we can see is the trouble. And we forget the hope of the gospel. But it's not only such afflictions that can move us. It is, it is not only such afflictions that can, can cause us to, to, to slide away. It is also ease and, and comfort when things are, are going well. Because when things are going well, we forget our need. We, we forget the one we need. We forget that, that, that we stand only by His grace. We become confident in our own abundance. What the Proverbs say, the rich regard their wealth as a strong tower. Rather than taking refuge in the Lord, they take refuge in their abundance. But it is an imaginary security. It is a security that will not last. For in this age, Jesus tells us, wealth will be eaten up by the moth and destroyed by the rust or, or taken away by the thieves. In a moment, it is gone. And so, both ease and hardship, both comfort and pain can move us from the hope of 
the gospel. What hope then do we have? How, how can we guard against being moved? How can we remain stable and, and steadfast? I believe that the scriptures consistently point us in the same direction. The scriptures consistently point us back to what we have called the ordinary means of grace. It's not a familiar term, but, but think about what it means. We, we know what a means is, a means to an end. It's, it's an instrument, it's a, it's a way, it's something that is used to get us from here to there. And the scriptures tell us that there are ordinary means, ordinary instruments that God uses to pour his grace into the life's, uh, life of his people. We sometimes ask for, for God to strengthen us. We sometimes ask for God to, to pour out his grace. And then we neglect the means that he has set before us. You've probably heard the story about the man who was, who was caught in the flood. And he's, he's trapped upon his roof, right? And, and he prays to God that God would, would deliver him. And along comes a boat. And, and he says, no, 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 God's going to save me. And then along comes someone on a jet ski and he says, no, 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 God's going to save me. Finally, the flood overwhelms him. And of course, he asks God, why didn't you save me? He says, well, I sent you a boat and I sent you a jet ski and I sent you a helicopter. What more did you need? We laugh at a story like that. And yet, how often do we neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has set before? So what are those ordinary means? What are the... the the tools that God has said he will use to pour grace into the lives of his people. They are, of course, his word, prayer, the sacraments, and the communion of the saints. These are the means that God has given us. And he says, if you will make regular use of these, I will strengthen you to stand firm. And what I want you to notice about each of these means is that they all serve the same function. They all point us back to the gospel. In the Word, we have not a, a, a list of, of parables or fables that, that, that show us how to live, but rather they give us the story of who God is and what He has done. They, they tell us the story of our redemption. They remind us of the greatness of God. And we must let that Word dwell in our hearts Richly, we, we must soak in it. We must abide in it. We must feast upon it. It's the same word that we get in the sacraments when we come regularly to the Lord's table. We are feasting upon God's uh, Son as, as His body is broken and His blood is poured out for us. It reminds us of the truths of the gospel. It reminds us that God so loved the world that He gave His Son. It reminds us that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is looking to the cross that enables us to remember that God is for us even when our circumstances are not what we would desire or what we would would plan. When we look to our circumstances, we can begin to doubt. And the scriptures say, set your eyes upon Jesus. Remember who he is for you. Remember all that he has done for you. If the father did not spare his son, if the son did not cling to his life, how will this God not also graciously give us all things? 
His love has been proven. And we see it in the word. We, we see it in the sacraments. And we are reminded of it in prayer. Why are we commanded to pray? It's not because we need to convince God to do what he is unwilling to do. It is, it is God who loves us. We don't even need to remind God of what we need him to do. Jesus himself says, before you pray, your father already knows. Why then do we pray? We pray because prayer brings us back into the presence of God. Prayer is our communion. It is our fellowship with him. It is where we are strengthened and where we are sustained and where we are reminded of who he is for us. And so in prayer, we put down deep roots into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's what we do when we come together. It's what the communion of the saints is all about. Why has God placed us in community? Why has he made us members of his body? Why has he brought us together as a church? That we might stir one another up. That we might encourage one another. That we might comfort one another with the comfort that we ourselves have received. That together we might remember the gospel and stand firm in it. Our fellowship is a, a fellowship centered around Christ, rooted in Christ. Together we can remind one another of what we know to be true, but so easily forget. In fellowship we can hold one another accountable. In fellowship we can stir one another up. We can prod one another on. This Christian life is not something we can do in isolation. It's not something we can do as lone rangers. We need to be in regular fellowship with other believers. Other believers who are like us, rooted in the word, feasting upon the supper, constant in prayer. Because in a community like that, we will be strengthened to stand firm. We will be strengthened to remain steadfast. We will be able to be unmoved from the hope of the gospel because the hope of the gospel will dwell in us richly. This is the vision that, that Paul has. He, he is calling us to these things. But if he is calling us to these things and if he is confident that God will strengthen us to this end, why does he say if? If, to many of us, it sounds like he isn't all that confident. It sounds like he is, he is doubting. But I, I want to suggest to you that's not what Paul is doing, but rather Paul uses the word if to remind us that what is required is not a one-time profession of faith, but rather a lifetime of faith. As he says in Romans chapter 4, what is required is that we would walk in the footsteps of faith, all of our days. He is not doubting or, or denying what we call the doctrine of, of perseverance. Now we do need to understand what the doctrine of perseverance is. The, the doctrine of perseverance is not once saved, always saved, as, as that phrase is often used today. When people use that phrase today, what they often mean is that if you make a profession of faith, you're good regardless of what you do for the rest of your life. Let me tell you now that that is about as unbiblical as it gets. There is nothing in Scripture that would suggest that, that a profession of faith, no matter how sincere at this moment, means you're good regardless of what you do for the rest of your life. 
Rather, the doctrine of perseverance means that all those whom God gives the gift of faith, all those who, who receive and rest upon Jesus Christ by God's grace, that they will continue in that faith until the end. It means that none who, who truly believe will, will be finally or, or fully lost. They will sin. Like David, they may sin grievously, but they will not finally fall away. They will continue in the footsteps of faith. That's what the doctrine of perseverance means. That those who believe will continue in faith until the end, not by their own power, but by the very power of God. And we believe this doctrine because it's taught throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself in John chapter 6 says, I will lose none of all the Father has given me, and I will raise them up on the last day. I will lose none, Jesus says. Similarly, in, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that those whom the Father has predestined, he has called, and those whom he has called, he has justified, and those whom he has justified, he has glorified. There is a a constant chain, a constant progression. Those who are called are justified, and those who are justified will one day be glorified. Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The inheritance that is ours in Christ is an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. And notice what he says. It is an inheritance kept in heaven. Remember Jesus' words. It is, it is kept where moth and rust can't touch it. It is kept where thieves cannot steal it. It is kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance is secure. But Peter doesn't stop there. It is not only our inheritance that is secure. But we also are secure, for he says, Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So it's not only our inheritance that is being kept, but we are being kept. God will keep us, not without faith, but notice what he says, he will keep us in faith, he will keep us through faith. For the salvation that will one day be fully revealed. It is God's power that strengthens us to persevere. And so when Paul says if, he is not calling into question the, the perseverance of the saints, but he is actually reminding us that by God's power, not only can we, but we must persevere. You see, the, the doctrine of perseverance teaches not only that we will persevere, but it teaches that we must Persevere. Perseverance means that those who do not persevere will not be saved. Not because they have somehow lost their salvation, but because they have proven that they were never truly in Christ. John says this explicitly in his first letter. He says, those who went out from us proved that they were not of us. For if they had been truly of us, they would have remained with us to the end. And so by saying if, Paul is simply reminding us of our obligation as disciples of Jesus Christ. That we must daily resolve to walk in the footsteps of faith. That we must continue in the hope of 
the gospel. So think about what that means for us. It means that we must, in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit, that, that grace that is available to us in the ordinary means of grace, that in humble reliance upon His immeasurable grace, we must daily resolve to walk in the footsteps of faith. And whatever resolutions you are considering for the new year, this is by far the most important. Other resolutions have value. But there is no resolution that is more significant than this. For if you gained all your other resolutions, what would it matter if you failed at this point? And so, as we face the beginning of a new year, this is my challenge. This is my call to you as the people of God. Paul says you must this coming year continue in the faith. You must this year be stable and steadfast and unmoved from the hope of the gospel. And therefore you must resolve daily in humble reliance upon his empowering grace that you will do so. That you will continue in the footsteps of faith. This must be your resolution. Not because you think you're going to keep it perfectly. Let me just tell you now, you, you won't. You, you will fail. You will fall. You will turn to both the right and to the left. And so you may wonder, what's the point of making a resolution that I know I won't keep? I suggest to you that we make the resolution because it is the resolution that is the essence of our repentance. When we repent, we turn from our sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. He, he receives us not because we will actually achieve that which we are aiming for. It's not by our works that we are saved. But rather, it is our humble acknowledgement that He is our rightful Lord. It is that act of faith that He rewards. And he says that if we will turn to him in faith, by his grace, he will get us to the finish line. Not without failures, not without stumbling along the way. But that he will get us there. Remember again what Paul says in these verses, that he has reconciled us, that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Your obligation as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to resolve today to walk as his follower, to, to today turn from your sin and walk in new obedience, to, to pursue him, to follow him. And he is the one who will grant the fruit. He is the one who will one day, probably not this year, but one day he will get you to the finish line. One day he will complete the good work which he has begun in you one day he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach to the father that's his work your work is to resolve it's just another word for faith it's just another word for acknowledging that he is your lord for turning from your sin to him with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience today May you do that every day 
in the year to come. And if you do, he promises that his mercies will be new every morning. That he will bring you to the goal one day. And that one day you will be made perfect in the glorifying and enjoying of God for all eternity. And that, because that is where he is taking all those who resolve to live as his followers in humble reliance upon his grace. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we can make resolutions we know we can't keep because we know he is faithful. Father God, I pray for each one of us this year that we would be people who daily resolve in humble reliance upon your grace to walk as becomes the followers of Christ. In his name and for his name's sake we pray. Amen.